Hello, and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Strong Words Edition. It's Friday, February 12th, and I'm Mariam Ibrahim. I'm a legislature reporter for the Edmonton Journal and your Press Gallery host. I'm joined in our newsroom studio today by health reporter Keith Gerine. Hello. City columnist Paula Simons. Good morning, Miriam. And provincial affairs columnist Graham Thompson. Hello. Hello, everyone. Well, it was a week of strong words in Alberta politics this week. Catholic bishops were in the news again after releasing a letter, but this time it wasn't about the province's separate school system. Auditor General Merwin Saher released a 120-page report that included some harsh criticism for several government departments. We'll dissect those findings. And it looks like Alberta and BC's hot and cold relationship is cooling off once again after our neighboring province threw some not-so-subtle jabs our way. We'll break it down and, as usual, wrap things up with some good stuff from the gallery. Here we go. So Alberta's Catholic bishops have been making headlines recently with their open letters, and this week was no different. This time, they used some pretty frank language to oppose the pending legalization of physician-assisted suicide in this country, which uh, follows a Supreme Court ruling. Uh, I want to read an excerpt from that statement. They're saying that Albertans have a, quote, natural right to be served by doctors and institutions that practice only medicine and are not involved in state-sponsored killing. (laughs) Yes. Uh, As I said, the strong words edition. Um, That is a statement that was signed by six bishops, including Edmonton Archbishop Richard Smith and Bishop uh, Fred Henry of Calgary, who we have also discussed uh, on this podcast in the the past. Keith, you covered this yesterday. So what what are the bishops demanding? (laughs) It's quite a wide-ranging statement you picked out probably you know I, I thought kind of the most telling quote of all you picked it out <laughs> actually I got that I read that in yeah. your in your news article so yeah. so good job yeah so th- there's kind of three main things that that I um, highlighted in that uh, for my story I mean one of them is I, I think a legitimate um, concern is that physician assisted suicide is going to probably uh, affect certain groups more than others. So there are some legitimate worries about how this is going to play out for very frail seniors, for people with disabilities, for people with mental illness. And and the bishops want to make sure there are adequate protections and adequate services in place so those people don't kind of feel pressured to take an action that they they probably shouldn't or, or maybe that they, they, they aren't really ready for. Uh, the other two things that came out of that letter are a little more controversial. So one of them is about doctors. And the bishops want the conscience rights of doctors protected. So in practical terms, that, this means... That phrase we've heard before y- in this yes. province. Uh, yes, that was a wild rose yeah. uh, brought that up at uh, during the, uh, the 2012 election and, and since as well. But uh, essentially that means that a doctor who morally objects to performing physician-assisted suicide, uh, they would not be forced to do that. But more than that, they would not also, um, they, they would have the right to refuse to even refer to another doctor who would perform it. Uh, so that actually gets quite tricky because uh, according to professional standards doctors have, if they're not going to perform a service for conscientious reasons, they do have to at least pass the patient on to somebody who will give them better information. So that, that does be, uh, become kind of a tricky point. And the last thing, which was referred to in the quote that you, that you read out there, was the bishops want facilities in this province, hospitals and health centers that are not going to participate in, in this kind of activity at all, right? So uh, in practical terms, that means Covenant Health. That is the Catholic organization in the province that operates a bunch of long-term care centers, nine hospitals, including two big ones in Edmonton. Uh, and if they get their way, which, which they seem like they will, 
physician-assisted suicide will not be available at any of those facilities. Is it, I, let's not call it physician-assisted suicide, please, because it's not suicide. We're talking about people who are terminally ill in absolutely uh, mind-altering pain who are making a decision to speed their death, which is the inevitable consequence of their fatal illness. The language so is interesting there, yeah, right? How I they mean, chose to <clears throat> phrase it. I mean, I, I, I will not call it suicide because I don't think we're talking about suicide. We're talking about people who are terminally ill, uh, speeding up a natural process. Where instead of, instead of extenuating their dying by artificial uh, means, we're going to allow people to die when it is their time. I don't have a problem with that. I also don't have a problem, frankly, with the Catholic Church saying that that is in opposition to their teachings. Uh, I am just as concerned as Archbishop Smith that people shouldn't be hurried into a premature grave. Nobody should feel pressured and that, you know, that people, this has to be about individual rights and individual choice. Here is the problem. This isn't just like some religious group saying that these are their religious principles. Covenant Health runs a parallel health care system in this province. They run the Misericordia Hospital and the Grey Nuns Hospital in Edmonton, and they run the palliative care program at the General Hospital. And if the Archbishop and the bishops are saying that Covenant Health is not going to follow the Supreme Court of Canada ruling, and they're not going to follow the law of the land, I'm sorry, that is not tenable. I mean, and it, I think it raises a really important question about why we still have a parallel Catholic healthcare system in this province. And it does, it bothers me, but they get tax dollars. If you're part of a government system, you got to follow the law. Let me go back to this conscience rights. It was raised in 2012 and before, dealing with same-sex marriage. Now, you had Klein as well saying that we should allow marriage commissioners the right to opt out of performing the ceremonies. No, if you're actually licensed by the province to deal with a government-regulated and a court-protected right, you got to provide that right. You just can't opt out of it. And same thing here. Yes, people, it's an end-of-life issue. It's a lot more maybe sensitive in some ways than same-sex marriage, but ultimately it's about rights and it's about the courts making decisions. We live in a society that should not be governed by religious uh, dictates. In Quebec, they've come up with what I think is a reasonable compromise, which is to say that if the doctor won't perform the service, he or she doesn't have to refer you, but they have to refer you back to sort of the Quebec version of the College of Physicians and Surgeons, which will find you someone who will do this. I mean, I actually will defend conscience rights. I mean, I don't think a healthcare provider, whether that's a doctor or a nurse practitioner, should be compelled to perform an abortion or to perform an end-of-life procedure if that's really contrary to their religious values, because I would defend their individual religious rights, their individual conscience rights. What I will not defend is the right of the Catholic Church to impose their views on everybody who comes in the door of their hospital. And people were saying to me on social media yesterday, well, you have a choice. You don't have to go to the Misericordia. You don't have to go to the Grey Nuns. It's like, really? When my mom got taken by ambulance to the hospital two weeks ago, they took her to the Misericordia Hospital because she lives in the West End, not because she's Catholic, because she's not Catholic. But you know, I mean, when you're in a hospital, uh, oftentimes you did not choose which hospital to go to. Either it's an emergency situation and you went wherever the ambulance took you based on where there were openings that day, or perhaps where your physician has admitting privileges or where the specialist you need to see has his or her practice. Well, Keith, and what are, what are doctors saying? I mean, 
Yeah, it's really kind of twisting twisting them up a little bit. I think there's a lot of um, soul searching going on. I think there's a lot of um, a lot of debate. So I talked to a couple of doctors yesterday at this press conference that the bishops held, and they are, um, for whatever reason, probably religious reasons, um, they are against performing. Doctor assisted su- uh, death. <laughs> doctor assisted death. Paula, <laughs> uh, helping a patient to die, um, but they they also don't want to refer. They feel like if they are forced to refer, if they are even forced in some ways to give information about the process, that they are complicit in killing that patient, right? And that goes against their values. Others, um, you know, believe it's actually the more compassionate route to to help uh, a patient do this. Um, but of course, everyone's concerned that there has to be a, po- a proper process that's followed, making sure that patients are of sound mind, that they actually do understand what they're um, what they're asking, and that there are opportunities to get out of it if they need to. So, but it is a complicated issue for this yeah. profession. But well, to call it state-sponsored killing, I mean, as though the Nazis are lining you up at the gas chamber and turning on the Cyclone B. I mean, it's just it is beyond offensive. And anyone who has ever had a family member or close friend die a long, lingering death from cancer or ALS or another kind of horrific, fatal illness. Any human being who who has any feeling of empathy at all can see that black and white rules that say that the medical system can keep you alive as long as their machines and magic potions can keep you alive, when clearly you are dying. We're not talking about extending people's lives. We're talking about extending their deaths. Bigger issue moving forward, I think, is looking at, like, do we need a Catholic sponsored or directed health system like the educational system other provinces have scrapped their separate school boards quebec and um newfoundland i think have both done it um like it was us saskatchewan and ontario you've written about this paula um to me it would not be impossible just to scrap the catholic school system in alberta kind of impossible legally but no i think that other provinces have done it You, you can do it i think that that the thing is, as we move towards this discussion about the Catholic Church trying to, in a sense, treat the system like a parochial system, that's going to get people upset, I think, in the province. And they'll start wondering, why can't we just scrap the system? Like the, the issue dealing with same-sex marriage, the churches were against that. You know, they're afraid it's going to force Catholic churches to marry same-sex couples. Of course it wasn't going to do that. They were heading off in a red herring direction. And it seems to me they're doing the same thing here with this, calling it state-sponsored killing. Uh, they're, they're twisting the debate to suit their own ends. Well, it certainly obviously raises a lot of questions as this discussion has uh, demonstrated. And I have a feeling we will obviously be having uh, a lot more discussions about it going forward as we see government sort of wrestle with how they they uh, handle this. Um, but we should move on because I do want to talk a little bit about a uh, Auditor General report that came out Auditor General Merwin Sahar dropped another big report this week, Uh, 120 pages. It looked into programs in a bunch of different government departments, from energy to municipal affairs to Alberta justice. Graham, it seemed like some of the harshest criticism was on the former PC government's handling of uh, that flood file, um, basically botching the transition of of the uh, DRP request, the Disaster Recovery Program requests. um. Yeah, it's interesting that there was a half a dozen or or more, actually, recommendations dealing with some major files that all date back to the PCs. It's important to make that distinction right now. People are emailing me saying, yes, this is proof that the NDP government has failed. 
No, we're talking here about issues that have gone on for decades in some cases and years past. This is the AG, Auditor General, looking back at what happened in previous years, and it's all to do with the, pr the previous PC government, which is why the NDP is very happy to, to chime in saying, this report shows just how badly things were run. We said this too. Uh, yeah. yeah, we've been saying this for years, how badly <laughs> things were, were done, and this is just proof. Um, yeah, and uh, for example, the flood file, they, they botched that. Very often what we're seeing in these reports is, that it's sh is saying the old PC government would change the system, either make things worse, or not follow up to see if, in fact, the new system is actually working. Another one example is a royalty rate reduction. Mm -hmm. um, under this uh, program, the OPC government gave, uh, in 2015, $1.4 billion in royalty reductions to oil companies so they could actually get more oil and gas out of the ground. This was for projects that were sort of deemed to be a bit ha harder. Yeah, it was and, oil. And they needed a, a sort of benefit or exactly. an incentive to, to so go after to go the after oil. It. So this oil and gas would normally be unrecoverable. Give them a royalty rate reduction. In other words, they can get this other ground. You actually, you're getting a break. And then that, in a, in a sense, would actually generate more income for the government for oil sales and natural gas sales. Well, they give up $1.4 billion and then never do a follow-up to figure out, is this actually working? Are they <laughs> actually getting what they want we're back actually in getting, return? We're actually getting benefits I think from the this. Auditor General actually said, you know, to spend a dollar and get a dollar twenty-five back is great. But in this case, the government doesn't know how much it's getting back at all. Right. Could be 10 cents. Could be, yeah. Yeah. Could be <laughs> nothing. Exactly. And, and, and what's fascinating to me always about these things is these aren't ideological things. This isn't a question of, you know, a left-wing, right-wing perspective. It's just bad management. And, and I think that's what's really damning of that PC legacy. This is not a question of, you know, did they do this the right-wing way, is they didn't even do it like a sensible shoes way that you would want any government of any ideological stripe to manage your money. Well, uh, speaking of managing money, so one of the stories that I worked on from this was about this massively growing surplus in the Victims of Crime Fund. Um, and it, that is expected to hit $56 million this year. So, and for those of you who are not familiar, the Victims of Crime Fund is something that's set up to help um, victims of violent crime. It pays out financial benefits to them. It's set up through legislation and it's funded through court ticket surcharges. So, you know, surcharges at the end of a trial or speeding ticket fines, that sort of thing. Um, and it is mandated to put some of that money out to financial benefits to victims. And then there's also a budget set aside for funding for victim services units and police agencies and in communities. Um, but then there's just also this growing pile of extra money because the revenues are growing at a faster rate than these expenses. And it's not going anywhere. The Auditor General says it's just growing growing very quickly. It's growing even as victim services um, needs are growing also, and yet it's sitting unspent. It seemed totally maddening. Paula, is this just bad, bad bureaucracy? This is bad, bad, bad bureaucracy, and it's got to do with, with a twofold problem. One is that they have set caps on how much money they can give out from this fund to police agencies. So if you're Edmonton or Calgary, the maximum amount of money you get out of this fund is $300,000 a year. And if you're a smaller jurisdiction, it's $150,000 a year. But the caps are arbitrary. And so, haven't been adjusted for inflation since yeah. 2009. So, you know, they've, they've got this money that they literally can't give to agencies. So the agencies are having to do fundraising to make up their stopgap. But the other issue is about how they pay out the actual victims. And part of the problem is that it's very difficult. You have to... F I mean, the idea of this was... If you, know, if you had a civil action against somebody, you could sue them in court. So this is for people that the person who injured them 
is judgment proof because they're bankrupt or they're in jail. So, you know, you can't sue the person who shot you because he has no assets uh, unless he's, you know, a very big drug dealer. So the idea is this, this is supposed to make good the civil damages that you have suffered in lieu of a, of, of a tort against the person who shot you or ran you down with their car. Um, the problem is that it's very difficult to access those funds. Um, people tend to get quite small, small payments and who's entitled to define themselves as a victim is very, very limited too. In this very same year, the NDP government has come to a settlement with a class action of former foster children who are suing the government saying that they were sexually victimized and otherwise victimized while in care. And, and so the part of the settlement is that they'll be able to access the Victims of Crime Compensation Fund. Uh, some of them had tried and had been turned down. So it's very difficult to get compensation, even if you're a, a legit victim of a crime. So the idea that we're just stockpiling this money instead, instead of giving it to people who are victims of crime uh, is, I think, criminal in and of itself. Yeah. The sur that's, that wasn't the only sort of pile of surplus money that the Auditor General uh, identified in that report, Paula, was it? No, you know, they have a similar problem with the Office of the Public Trustee, who is supposed to be looking after the money of people who are too vulnerable to manage their own affairs. These are people with developmental disabilities, people who, who maybe have uh, dementia. And so the Office of the Public Trustee is also sitting on a big chunk of money, $76 million, in part because when they earn money, They've been earning an interest rate of 3.3%, but they've only been paying their clients 2.5%. And so they're stockpiling the rest of that money, which is, again, for some of the most vulnerable people in the province. Uh, this is not the first time the Auditor General has flagged problems in the Office of the Public Trustee. They did a big public trustee audit in 2013 after staff, uh, one staff member had stolen money from people. So, you know, uh, this is, this is a, a problem, and this is something that... Uh, uh, the government has to get on top of for both victims of crime and the Office of the Public Trustee. This is this is not how you carry out the public trust. Wow. Well, that's what the Auditor General's office is there for to sort of show, <laughs> shine light on the these AGN. things. Um, well, listen, in a, in a sort of surprising move, I want to say, the B.C. government this week used its throne speech to throw a few insults at Alberta, uh, criticizing the government for all sorts of things, spending too much, not diversifying the economy, um, calling B.C.'s carbon tax the only truly revenue-neutral carbon tax. Um, and, and then that, of course, prompted a bit of a response from the NDP government, who sort of felt happy to say, well, yeah, we agree. That was the PCs, though. We're here. We're going to make it better. Uh, and then, of course, the PCs jumped in and said, hey, that's not fair. We did some good. Graham, what's BC's beef with Alberta? Why do these governments keep having these sort of public spats? What's, what's the purpose of what's this? What's happening here is the BC's heading into an election. It's a year away in May of next year. They're into pre-election mode, or actually the campaign mode really has begun with the throne speech. And... You never see governments using throne speeches to actually like, attack another province. I've never actually seen it myself. It, it doesn't get partisan in the sense of attacking other provinces. They tend to elevate themselves. Um, in that speech, you had the B.C. government, uh, who's you know, written, writes these things, and then the uh, lieutenant governor delivers them, um, saying, you know, Alberta has lost its way over the years, over the decades. Alberta uh, was living as if the boom times will live on forever. Now, I talked to Christy Clark's office who said, well, look, we're talking about the old PC government. This is in the past. The PC governments of the past overspent. And this is just a cautionary tale about overspending the good times. And I mentioned, okay, then what about this uh, carbon tax? 
didn't mention Alberta, just talked about BC has a revenue neutral tax as opposed to a money grubbing tax. Well, that and was a, one of the more, I suppose, subtle ones, but still seemed to me to be obviously directed well, at the NDP. Now, I talked to uh, Ben Chin in uh, Christy Clark's office, communications director, and he said that was actually aimed across the floor at the NDP in BC. <laughs> but what's happening here is this is still the NDP here being caught in a crossfire because you can expect as this campaign goes on, the election campaign heats up, you're going to see BC point more and more to Alberta as if you vote for the NDP in BC, you're going to get what happened in Alberta. So this is politics. It's a bit like what Harper did after he went on the campaign trail and began blaming the NDP government in Alberta, like one month old, for all the problems in Alberta. So you're going to start seeing this. And you've got Christy Clark saying, and last night she said, look, I love Alberta. It's one of my, it's our best friend. I'm just pointing out some facts about you can't overspend money expect the good times to continue. This is her way of trying to be nicely stabbing a knife in the back of Alberta for her own political ends. And this is politics. I thought it was interesting. Uh, Don Braid, uh, our colleague at the Calgary Herald, wrote a uh, strongly worded column um, to reference our title this week, uh, basically coming down pretty hard on the NDP for saying, you know, you know, maybe some of those things are true, but you shouldn't be agreeing so much with this government over there because regardless it makes Alberta look bad and what would you know investors think and we should you know be standing up for Alberta more strongly. It, it's tricky right I mean it, it's the same thing we had with Denis Coderre a couple of weeks ago o- only more so I mean if, Al- if the government overreacts and looks all angry and flustered it, it it almost plays into that narrative. I mean, at this point, I think probably Alberta is paying more attention to BC's throne speech than people in British Columbia are. You know, it's interesting. Lord Acton used to say of French diplomacy that it was a mixture of treachery and bad manners. And I really think that is the way Christy Clark has been towards Alberta. And this is not just with the NDP. I mean, she did this to Alison Redford, too, put the knife right in her back. I mean, in some ways, I think that if you pay too much attention to other people's bad behavior you just reward the bad behavior you know um i i think we just have to accept as alberta that british columbia is going to treat us with a mixture of treachery and bad manners and the more we fuss about it the more defensive we look the problem for the government here though is that the opposition here picks on picks it up and says aha even bc is attacking the alberta government so, so they have to, in a sense, respond. And you had Billis coming out this week, Darren Billis, to try and respond. He's an economic and development and Mi- trade minister. Yeah. And he was trying to respond because what's happening is it's being used by people here in the province to attack the NDP government. But yeah, they're, they're kind of caught in a position where um, if they overreact, they're seen as being defensive. Now, they told me they're going to try and take the high road. Like They just can't get into a tit-for-tat attacking the B.C. government over things because the thing is they need B.C. at the end of the day to try and get those pipelines built. Yeah, Keith, this, as a, a Paula sort of reference, this really feels like deja vu. C- can can Alberta and BC ever get along, or are we always going to have this hot and cold relationship? No, no, we're different. Like, you know, to you know, to us, Alberta is like the conservative, slightly redneck uh, <laughs> hinterland, right, uh, where we're only too happy to tear up our environment, to, to, to serve the common good, right. to sustain the Canadian economy where real work gets done. BC is the place we go to retire. It's the place we, you know, we go on vacation. It's full of pot-smoking hippies who spend all their time snowboarding and uh, 
going to climate change rallies. And right? people who I'm, can yeah. somehow afford those ridiculously uh, expensive right. homes. <laughs> right. And I joke, of course, right. And yeah. they probably have a similarly dim view of us uh, there. But I mean, there are some important cultural differences between the two places. And the political leaders kind of have to pander to those. So uh, Graham's right. This is politics. This is uh, a time of election or at any time when uh, a government feels it's in trouble. Yeah, let's attack attack your neighbor, attack a different government. It's uh, it's not our fault. It's the guys across the border. They're causing all, all <laughs> you know, your problems. You know, and the irony is that it's British. I think it's because British Columbia itself is feeling defensive because, you know, once upon a time, BC's population was significantly larger than Alberta's. It was a much larger player. Now Alberta's population has been growing at such a pace that we're going to overtake British Columbia's population. Vancouver has this huge problem that because of its runaway real estate prices, all of its young people are leaving because if you're a young professional in your 20s and 30s, you have to know that there is no future for you in Vancouver. Those people are coming more and more to Edmonton and Calgary, uh, and, and their capital and their human capital are coming with them. The thing is, I would disagree in the sense, to me, this smells like good old-fashioned retail politics in a sense. And I, I wish it was that elevated, Paula. Graham is unwilling to give that much credit. <laughs> you know, you know, I, exactly. Reading that speech, you're thinking, you didn't need to uh, mention Alberta like that. Uh, and such, and th- I talked to people in the premier's office in BC. And, it, and the thing is, even though Billis said, I asked him if you talk to the premier's office in BC. Well, no, you know we're keeping things above board. I know behind the scenes there was calls made from the PR office in uh, the premier's office here to Ben Chin's office immediately, <laughs> saying, "What the heck are you guys doing?" And I think it was this is Christy Clark uh, taking out a, a, a cudgel, um, using Alberta to. to bash away at the NDP in BC. We saw this happen with Harper, as I pointed out. This, to me, is just the Liberal government in BC looking for an issue it can raise, and it's going to say to people in BC, if you don't vote for us, you're going to vote for the NDP, you're going to get what happened in Alberta, even though it's completely unfair and a simplistic reading of what's actually happened here, but that's what's going to happen, and you can expect it to get a lot hotter, I think, as we move in towards May of next year. Well, we, we better wrap it up there, uh, but before we go, let's check in with our panelists for some good stuff from the gallery, which is our weekly segment where we share a read, watch, or listen that's usually, but not always, of a political nature. Keith, let's start with you. Right. So uh, I was going to recommend the uh, the Democratic debate from last night, but I understand you would like to recommend this as well. <laughs> so I'm gonna, I would. Uh, so I'm going I to actually was, was late sending out the script for this mm-hmm. podcast because I got so distracted mm-hmm. by that debate last night. So apologies once again to my panelists. <laughs> Go ahead, Keith. It was a great debate, but uh, I do have a backup. And, and this is uh, last week, you may remember, I went back into history of this book on Cicero, uh, ancient Rome. So I'm going back into history again, not quite as far. Um, there is a documentary series, and this is probably a year or two old now, on the Roosevelts, uh, an intimate history. I think it's a five-part series or six-part series that aired on PBS. It's been replaying recently, uh, and it's just a, a very interesting history of Teddy Roosevelt, Franklin, Franklin Roosevelt, and Eleanor Roosevelt. And again, I am very struck by you know, uh, 50, 60, 70 years ago, 100 years ago, how similar American politics are to what we're seeing today in Alberta and Canada. Fascinating. Well, since Keith let the cat out of the bag about my good stuff, I'll go ahead and recommend the Democrat debate that uh, the Democratic debate that uh, aired last night on PBS uh, between obviously Bernie Sanders and uh, Hillary Clinton. I'm really enjoying the debates, the Democratic debates now that they're just the two two candidates sort of able to square off. And I thought last night's debate was really interesting. Uh, But 
I think one of my favorite parts about it was there was this great SNL bit um, last week called uh, where they brought in Larry David and did like a short mini episode sort of ripping off Curb Your Enthusiasm, calling it Burn Your Enthusiasm. And in it, there was this great bit about, um, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders unwilling to shake a supporter's hand because uh, the the supporter had coughed. And last night, Bernie Sanders was just coughing up a storm, really. And it became this sort of, uh, it was pretty funny to me because I thought, oh my gosh, this is life imitating art literally Paula what have you got I've got something closer to home I'm going to recommend a new podcast series that's begun by the Edmonton Heritage Council and their Edmonton City is Museum Project eCamp and their first uh, edition of their podcast was called Edmonton, a world-class dump, which looks, <laughs> looks at the history of Edmonton's relationship. Send all hate mail to Paula Simon directly, <laughs> please. Thank you. No, it's it's about Edmonton's uh, historic and very politically fraught relationship with its garbage going back to the days when the city government handed out a night soil bucket for you to collect your night soil. Uh, it's, uh, is that what I think it is? Yeah, that it is, is okay. what you think it is. It's, 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 it's a delightful... Um, a very quirky look at Edmonton history hosted by Sarah Hoyles. He used to be with CKUA. And so uh, podcast to podcast, I highly recommend it. I'm really getting into podcasts lately, so I'm definitely adding that to my my, uh, list. Go ahead, Graham. Uh, Before I get into mine, I was going to point out, we talked a lot today about the Auditor General's report. It's online. You can go online to the AG's office. And, you know, I make fun of them. Sometimes the turgid way they write (laughs) things. But overall... Merwin Sarah does a really good job. Merwin Sarah, of course, is the AG. They do a really good job, and they, they do uncover a lot of uh, problematic things in government. But my good um, thing for today <laughs> is um, some Stuff Vox. I think is good. Stuff I think is good. Vox.com has an interesting uh, online piece on the Donald Trump phenomenon explained in 21 maps and charts. looks at the history of Donald Trump as to why he is doing what he's doing now. It goes back to the... He first became uh, an issue or became relatively well-known on the political front with the birther, birtherism, or whatever they call it. You know, he was questioning that, you know, was Obama born in the United States? And it, it, it follows on different graphs and charts as to what he's actually doing and why he is, what he, he is where he is now. Because it's still a mystery to me as to how this person has become such a phenomenon in the U.S. politics. So that's Vox.com, uh, 21 uh, reasons uh, why Donald Trump has become the phenomenon that he is. And I feel like I should just say, since Graham is dissing the way the Auditor General writes his reports, <laughs> that we are very sad to say that the Auditor General's next report is going to yes. be much better written because the Auditor General just recently stole from us our Karen Cleese, who is leaving the journal to go to work for the Auditor General's department to uh, make his reports more accessible and for she'll be more read- people. She doesn't start until July, so hopefully she'll have an influence for the next report <laughs> in the fall. We'll, we'll see. But um, yes, Karen is a wonderful writer, and um, I'm looking forward to actually reading the reports to see um, just how good they're going to be. He's literally <laughs> rubbing his hands in anticipation. <laughs> so that's how excited he is, everybody. Well, we'll definitely throw those links up online for everyone here. And that's it for this edition of the Press Gallery. You can find this episode and an archive of past editions on the website at edmontonjournal.com opinion. You can also listen to us on SoundCloud and via TuneIn Radio and, of course, on iTunes. And if you like us, maybe write a review for us. Subscribe and a fresh edition of the Press Gallery will be delivered right to you. Thank you to Sean Butts, our videographer this week, and thank you all for listening. I'm Mariam Ibrahim, and we'll be back next week in the Press Gallery.